Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation and broadcasting right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman and this is our first show back for 2018. So thank you for joining us again and I hope you had a delightful holiday season. We've got a rock star panel in the studio and on the phone, so we are off to a good start for the year. Coming up on the show, we're taking a look at proposed changes to national security legislation and what they mean for journalism and free speech. And we'll get into the latest chapters in the story of how social media is destroying the news and society in general. Specifically, we'll be talking about the most recent changes to Facebook's feed and the murky market of online influence revealed by the New York Times expose on fake Twitter followers. Joining me in the studio is HuffPost Australia's Associate Editor, Josh Butler. Hi, Josh. Hi. Dana McCauley, media writer for The Australian. Hi, Dana. Hi, Olivia. And joining us on the line from Melbourne is Miriam Robin, rear window columnist with the Australian Financial Review. Hi, Miriam. Hi. But first, we need to talk about Barnaby. The Daily Telegraph's publication of a story complete with photos about the pregnant former staffer of the Deputy Prime Minister has caused a flurry of interest in the work of the Canberra Press Gallery and the ethics of stories on the private lives of our politicians. Once the telly story was live, the rest of the Australian media took a no-holds-barred approach and the internet and airwaves were abuzz with chatter about the affair that precipitated the end of Joyce's 24-year marriage. Now, many have criticised the publication of the story and everything that has followed it on the grounds that Barnaby's private life has nothing to do with his position in Parliament. 
But others have pointed out the glaring hypocrisy in the fact that Joyce campaigned relentlessly throughout the marriage equality debate about preserving the sanctity of traditional marriage, all the meanwhile carrying on an extramarital affair and shock horror creating a child out of wedlock. So was Joyce's affair in the public interest? Who wants to start with this one? I think I think it is. Look, um, I've been sort of tossing this around uh, for for a while. Actually, um, it it has kind of been an open secret uh, in in Canberra for a long time. Um, you know, I I report from the gallery sometimes, and I don't get this sort of gossip. And I knew about it a couple of months ago. I think everyone kind of knew enough about it. Um, but uh, kind of going away from you know, the, the journalistic ethics, ethics of it. But look. I think it definitely is in public interest. Um, this is not some anonymous backbencher, you know, who no one knows about. And if it was, I would have said it's not in public interest. But this is the deputy prime minister of the country. Um, he's, uh, as you, as you mentioned, like he he campaigned, like he pontificated through the plebiscite period about the sanctity of marriage. You know, it's 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 a sacred institution, all that sort of thing. And all the while, he's he's carrying on this you know situation that he had going on. This isn't some minor person. This is a big deal in the parliament. Um, and I think when you're campaigning so strongly on a certain issue and you're doing the exact opposite thing behind everyone's back, I think everyone needs to know about this sort of thing. I think it's definitely uh, worth people knowing about. I, I think this idea that he campaigned really strongly on marriage equality, I mean, I, I don't know where that's come from. I mean, he didn't. I mean, he was sort of, um, you know, he, he sort of, you know, stated, he abstained on the final vote. He stated his belief on marriage equality. He was not one of the main campaigners. I think he always said he wasn't perfect. You know, that was sort of the standard response he said. And I think we, we talk about this hypocrisy angle because it makes us feel better about, you know, talking about and reporting on a somewhat icky story. But I, I don't think it holds all that much water. And I think that, you know, people are allowed to, to acknowledge where they fall short of the ideal. And I think that's sort of the, the tact he took. I mean, generally speaking, I, I don't know. I don't like listening to... I don't like describing this, I guess, as an affair because I think there has been the, the creation of a child out of this and, you know, there is going to be, a, a, you know, baby Joyce very soon. And um, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that the Deputy Prime Minister was going to, you know, have a child in a few months and no one would know about it. Like, I feel like this is always going to come out. I think Barnaby um, and, and Vicky probably would have preferred it to come out on their terms, you know, maybe with a, a sort of, you know, soft profile in Women's Weekly or something like that. But I guess it was always going to come out, which makes the question of, you know, the question is, you know, do they have a right to control the narrative about their own family, um, this forming family? And um, and I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure about whether they do, I guess, just because it seems like so many other people don't get to control the narrative of how the media speaks about their lives. And, and this is the Deputy Prime Minister. Well, I mean, he was one of the main campaigners on marriage. Like, he wasn't a Tony Abbott or a Lyle Shelton, but when he did speak about it, he was pretty strong. He talked about, you know, wanting his daughters to be looked after in a marriage and all that sort of thing. So, like, that, that's the one point I'll, I'll sort of make it in, in sort of response to that. Like, he wasn't one of the main headline grabbers, but whenever he did talk about it, he was quite strong on those sort of points about the sanctity of marriage and that sort of thing. I think he was asked about it and he answered honestly. <laughs> you know, he's a conservative guy. I don't think he sort of went out of his way to, to campaign on it. That's fair. Which... Yeah, this is a really divisive one. It's provoked extremely emotional reactions, even within my newsroom. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a, an amazing scoop by Sherry Markson. I have to admit, when I saw the front page, I 
wasn't quite sure how I felt about it, but I think um, I'm. I think it was. It was as, as has been mentioned. It was going to come out eventually. Barnaby Joyce has been given the opportunity to speak about it um, on a number of occasions, and you know, as it's also been pointed out, he will at some stage be probably wheeling a baby around the parliament. But I do think that this raises an interesting question of. Um, the, of the press gallery convention around privacy of, of, of politicians and, and where do we where do we draw that line? And I think that social media has a lot to do with that because you know people feel like if everyone knows about it, then why should we not talk about it? All right. Well, we might leave that topic there. New national security legislation has sparked widespread criticism from the media industry since it was tabled in Parliament on December 7th last year. The proposed amendments to the Espionage and Foreign Interference Bill were introduced by the PM to, in his words, counter the threat of foreign states exerting improper influences over our system of government and our political landscape. The changes are designed in part to stop leaks to journalists by introducing broad and subjective standards about dealing with classified information with significantly expanded sentences involving up to 20 years in prison. In a submission to the Parliamentary Joint Committee, a coalition of 14 of Australia's biggest media organisations said that the proposed legislation undermines the ability of news media to report in the public interest, that it criminalises all steps of news reporting and poses a real risk that journalists could go to jail for doing their jobs. However, the Deputy Director General of ASIO, Peter Vickery, told the committee that ASIO has evidence that several countries are actively seeking to conduct espionage and foreign interference, and he described the current level of threat as being greater now than it was during the Cold War. Last week, the public consultation period on the new legislation was extended until February 15th, but the government has repeatedly dismissed concerns that have been raised. The Attorney General, Christian Porter, said media organisations were making sensationalist claims. The government insists that intelligence and law enforcement agencies need more legal powers. Miriam, can you spell out for us how the laws pose a threat to journalists doing their job? Well, I mean, these these laws are like so massive, and like they'll, you know, there's a lot of implications, and I can't say I'm fully on top of all of them. But I guess the the headline one that you know the the Daily Telly strangely splashed the Trump page yesterday, which I thought was quite a, a highbrow splash for the Daily Telly, um, was about it, it being sort of, um, you know, it was going to be illegal under these laws. They think for journalists to even receive classified information. Um, which, you know, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I don't know who's right about this. I think the media proprietors probably have pretty good legal advice that's telling them, you know, this is what will happen, but obviously other people disagree. I mean, I'm just sort of, I'm a little pessimistic about a lot of this stuff just because I feel like when Australia passed mandatory metadata retention a couple of years back, the ability of journalists to, to protect sources who, you know, weren't... Um, professional espionage experts basically went away. Um, it's it's extraordinarily hard when you're dealing with, you know, state secrets reporting now. And, and I wonder if the horse has already bolted and this is just, you know, cementing an already really bad legal framework for journalism. Dana, would you agree uh, with Porter's assertion that the legal powers of uh, intelligence and law enforcement agencies are currently inadequate? Look, I... I'm not an intelligent expert, so I can't comment on the level of the threat posed by um, foreign nations. But regardless of that threat, 
there has to be a way to legislate to protect our national interests that doesn't endanger the freedom of the press. And it's just absolutely ridiculous that journalists should be exposed to being thrown in jail for 20 years for simply receiving documents without even knowing that they were receiving documents. And 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 the laws would also apply not only to journalists but even admin staff. So the EA at, at The Australian could be thrown into jail for picking up some documents from the mailroom. It's, it's just extraordinary. And, and Christian Porter says that the intention of the Act is not to go after journalists, but it doesn't matter. I mean, that's no. How how, how is that a consolation? I mean, it's yeah, it's outrageous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and in fact, so this coalition of media organisations submission just called for exemptions to be made for journalists. Is that an adequate solution? And are there potentially issues in defining who is and isn't a journalist? Mm. But you've got to protect your source as well. I mean, it's it's not just about protecting the journals. Mm. You can't protect your source. It's, yeah, yeah that, that's an interesting argument you make there because you know I think something that a lot of journalists, especially ones who work sort of in the online sphere, like the, this idea of who is a journalist and who isn't. Like, are you a journalist if you have a blog? Are you a journalist if you're making your own podcast? Are you a journalist if you're just tweeting out things on on Twitter without a website or anything like that? Like, where do you draw the line to be a journalist? I'm, there are a number of people who call themselves citizen journalists who just tweet things. Um, where do you draw that line? Like, do you have, could you see some random person on Twitter who, you know, somehow stumbles across this top secret document and goes, "Oh, look, I'm a journalist now." Like, it's, it, it's, it, on on the one hand, it's like a really simple fix to just say, "Oh, look, we'll carve out protections for journalists." And um, Labor has basically said they won't support this legislation unless there are sort of provisions to protect journalists and journalism uh, in these laws. But it's it's not as simple as just going, "Oh, look, journalists." You know, th- this section applies to everyone, but not journalists. Um, it, it it's not it's not that simple. Like there has to be another way around it. And like, you know, from what what Porter said about, you know, you know, we're not going to be prosecuting journalists and that sort of thing. Like he might say that now and like he might, you know, but he can't even direct a court to do that. Let, like in now, let alone in say 20 years from now when that law is still being applied and a whole different set of judges and, and judiciary and that sort of thing are looking after these laws. Like we look at how, I guess the, a good example is the, uh, Section 44 constitutional dual citizenship thing. Like, you know, a lot of all the constitutional lawyers were basically saying, look, as long as you've taken your reasonable steps to renounce your citizenship, you'll be fine. And the new High Court that, you know, looked at this for the first time in, what, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, they went, no, that's not how we're going to interpret it now. We're taking a very black and white interpretation. This is how we interpret it. So even if Porter can say, look, that's not how the courts will interpret it, he has no idea how it's going to be interpreted into the future. I, th- I think that there needs to be a clear exemption for journalists, and I, I mean it, it's ironic that the um, the ABC cabinet papers story just broke before this was being debated, and that was a really good illustration of how journalists do have experience in handling this type mm. of information responsibly. And you know they didn't put everything out there; they um, they negotiated to send the, the papers back safely and only reported on things that wouldn't put the national security at risk. So. Yeah, yeah and that, that's a good point too. Like, you know, there, there was some talk last week that if these laws had been in, that the ABC could have been in a lot of trouble for even possessing those papers, let alone publishing them, let alone, you know, telling everyone how they got them. So that was, a, it's it's a really uh, timely example that that cabinet 
the what they call them, the cabinet papers leak. Like you know, they obviously could have been in big trouble if they these laws had been in last week. You know, rather than in you know, a year year's time. Now there has been some criticism of the ABC though about the way that they dealt with those documents and that they essentially kowtowed to the government by handing them straight back. What do you make of that criticism, Miriam? Do you think it's justified? Yeah, I mean, I think that that criticism, which was by Brian Tooley in the AFR today, um, is is you know. I mean, I, I probably like considered a couple more things after I read that piece, and I broadly think he's, you know, correct in that, um, you know, it, it was a, a very, um, and you know, that one of the main things he he raised is just the amount of information that the ABC gave about about its source and about how it got the documents, mm. and you know, I, I just think, you know, I'm I'm really uncomfortable in a world where journalists are, you know, we're, we're guarding our turf, we're making sure we'll never be. You know, we're using the collective cloud of the industry to protect our ability to do our job, but ultimately we can't do it without our sources. And, and you know, if there's no public interest exemptions and if they're not broad enough, you know, it's, you know, it, it scares me about the ability of people to get information to journalists and, and the risks of doing that. And, and I think maybe the ABC was perhaps a little bit um, too keen to sort of protect its own back. Um, though, you know, obviously the ABC is very good at defending itself and I'm sure in a couple of days we'll get a, a big response from, from them to, to some of the criticisms made of them. You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Josh Butler, Dana McCauley and Miriam Robin. It seems that Mark Zuckerberg's New Year's resolution for 2018 was to step up the fight against fake news. In January, Facebook announced changes to their news feed that sparked terror in news publishers and brands. Firstly, Facebook will shift their algorithms so that you'll see more posts from your Facebook friends and your groups in your news feed, what they're calling meaningful connections, and less posts from businesses and brands and media. Secondly, Facebook is going to increase its involvement in flagging fake news sites and promoting posts from trusted media organizations. But in line with Facebook's ongoing assertions that they are not a media company, but rather a technology company, they decided to let the Facebook community decide which publishers are trustworthy and which ones aren't. In the month of January, you might have seen a short survey pop up on your Facebook feed asking you to rate how much you trust various news sources. As Zuckerberg so earnestly put it, the hard question we've struggled with is how to decide what news sources are broadly trusted in a world with so much division. We could try to make that decision ourselves, but that's not something we're comfortable with. We considered asking outside experts, which would take the decision out of our hands, but would likely not solve the objectivity problem. Or we could ask you, the community, and have your feedback determine the ranking. We decided that having the community determine which sources are broadly trusted would be most objective. So what could possibly go wrong here, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, uh, I think a lot can go wrong. I, I've seen that survey and basically it says, do you trust this outlet or are they a fake news outlet, something like that. And um, I think that's really, uh, I, I don't think that's the best way to, to judge an outlet's trustworthiness. Like you look at, you know, for instance, like we don't have this, as deep divisions here yet, I don't think. But look, you look at um, how how things are happening in the U.S. and I read a lot of stories in the U.S. about you know uh, you know trustworthiness in outlets and people's confidence in the media and that sort of thing. And um, it, it's so 
deeply, harshly divided on who you voted for in the election, whether it's Trump or, uh, or for Clinton, you know, Democrat versus Republican. Um, you know, I'm sure if you're a Republican in America, you'd say that New York Times is fake news. You would say that the Washington Post or CNN or BuzzFeed or HuffPost or whoever it is is fake news, whereas ones like Fox News would be, you know, really good news. And not would be the exact opposite if you're a, you're a liberal over there in the States. Um, there's a lot of issues with this particular um, idea of, you know, ranking outlets. Um, and I'm not sure... I'm not sure the inverse would even be any better, like whether it's, you know, someone at Facebook saying, oh, here's the good outlets, here are the bad ones. Um, but it, it, it's just so fraught um, with with uh, perils, I think, this entire approach. Like, obviously, the, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't even know what the solution would be. Like, obviously, they can't just be, you know, ranking, say, you know, the, these fake websites that are making up fake, fake, you know, actual fake news ones about, you know, those websites that invent stories about so-and-so celebrity dying or whatever like you can't ever rank those stories on par with you know the new york times or washington post or whoever it is but you know i I just don't see what the solution is here i think facebook have kind of built this behemoth this tool that is like the most effective tool for communicating in the history of the world and they've gone they've realized oh we don't know how to work this we don't know what to do with this now we've created these problems we don't know how to fix them um so i again i've got no solutions here but um it's just it's just a really uh perilous kind of topic i think mm, i think fake facebook is just scrambling to fix its image up in the wake of the the fake news scandal that has en- engulfed the company um and you know it i think the the view among media companies is that facebook will just it's very reactive it, you know it, as soon as it comes under scrutiny and there's a threat that it might be regulated it's it sort of goes oh okay what can we do to try and address this um Interestingly, the um, Edelman Trust Barometer came out today and it found that um, that the fake news had boosted people's trust in heritage media outlets, but the disclaimer is that that was um, the people that they surveyed were all university educated. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, Probably not the most reliable data there. It seems to me that Facebook is sort of trying to, continuing to try to approach this problem as a technology problem, that rejigging the feed is somehow mm. going to solve the problem of fake news. Miriam, do you think that that's the approach and do you think that that could work? I don't really know what what Facebook owes the media industry. Like, I think that they're they're viewing it as a as a tech problem. I guess just because that's that's what they see themselves as, and and what they've hired for, and what they've built their company as. And um, you know, I I think I don't know. I I wonder if we're all just focusing on, you know, and, and you know, partly this is just because people you know like talking about Facebook because they're all addicted to it. But um. You know, maybe maybe journalism should just focus on writing stories that are good enough for people to want to seek out, and uh, you know, not not really worry about this. And and if the the end result is that there's less um, junk journalism around, that um that can only really survive by monopolising people's attention or clickbait or thing or you know, being fake newsy. Um, then yeah, I think maybe maybe it's a good world where there's less of that. So um. But the reality yeah, I mean, is that, that they do owe news media publications something in that the news media have provided the bulk of content that has filled people's feed and brought them back to Facebook time and time again. So many people these days say that they get their news from social media. They actually get their news from news publications and find it on social media. So I think there is a little bit more to the relationship than that. And I think to say focus on 
just writing good journalism isn't quite enough because you need to find audiences and the audiences are on social. Would, would you agree with that? I mean, I, I, I've, I've always worked with subscription publications where socialism is, you know, not real, where social, not socialism, social media is, um, is not particularly effective just because people hit a paywall and then just don't go there. But, um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, my journalism has been read. Um, yeah, I, 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 I sort of, you know, partly it's just a real, real politics, um, in that I'm just, I, I sort of wonder whether there's anything we can do about about it. You know, Facebook um, is doing all it can to try and boost its engagement scores and it's decided that there's too much journalism on its platform. And, you know, maybe they're wrong about that and, and maybe journalism is why people go. But if, if they are wrong about that, I think it'll then put the journalism back. Have they decided that there's too much journalism or have they just decided that they want to make more money out of the journalism by forcing publishers to pay more to boost their posts? That's the question. Yeah, or have they decided that the journalism thing is just far too messy and they want to get out of that game? Yeah, I think think that's it. I think journalism needs Facebook more than Facebook needs journalism. Um, You know, we've all put our eggs in, you know, like Miriam, like you say, obviously you've worked for subscription services, but like, you know, social media, I'm sure would still be a a significant part of traffic and that sort of thing. Like we've put our eggs in this Facebook social media basket and Facebook every couple of months just changes the rules and we have to, uh, you know, our social media editors, you know, journalists, and that sort of thing have to suddenly scramble and work out what the new uh, arrangement is, what the new rules are, and that sort of thing. Like, you know, uh, at Half Post, we have a so, you know, our social media editor would uh, get us in for a, a social chat every week, and we talk about what was working well on social media and what wasn't, and how to best to target our our stories and that sort of thing. And every couple of months, she'd walk in and she'd sigh and she'd go, oh, "They've changed the algorithm again." Um, mm. So it was this mad scramble to try and work out what's what's happening, what's going on, how we can uh, you know be best suited to taking advantage of this new algorithm and that sort of thing and you know just because for, for I would say the majority of news sites blogs whatever out there Facebook is a massive proportion of traffic and to you kind of have to just suck it up and, and do what they tell you to do really like you can you can you can disengage you can get rid of your Facebook you can not publish into the Facebook but you know you'll be you'll be stung in the long term, I think. So I think Facebook, sorry, I think journalists need Facebook far more than Facebook needs journalism. And Facebook can just go, look, we're dealing this way. We want to deal with it. Either you get on board or you don't. We don't really care. An expose by the New York Times last week revealed the extent of Twitter's fake follower problem and the murky marketplace for social media fraud that fuels it. There are a number of companies that trade in this grey marketplace, but the New York Times investigation focused on a US company called Devumi that has established a very healthy business selling social media influence. It's provided its customers with more than 200 million Twitter followers. Politicians, journalists, sports stars, actors and even chefs were exposed as having bought followers and many a think piece was penned on the economy of online influence and all the social ills that go along with it. Now, the power and impact of social media influence has, over the past few years, become frighteningly clear. Most of the conversation focuses on Facebook, but in this instance, Twitter poses a very interesting problem in its heightened susceptibility to bots, which some have described as phantom foot soldiers in political battles online. Twitter's 330 million monthly active users is just a fraction of Facebook's 2.13 billion And many people joke that it's only journalists and celebrities on Twitter anyway. So should we even really care? 
I think you're very correct in this. Mostly celebrities and journalists on Twitter, but yeah, that's where a lot of news does come from. So it might not be that people see a lot of people see you know tweets and that sort of thing in their day to day lives, but they see the the follow through of that of journalists writing up stories about Twitter or writing about tweets. You know how many how many I, I couldn't tell you how many times on HuffPost our, our big story of the day, our, our most click story of the day is Trump tweets this or certain celebrity tweets that and that sort of thing. So a lot of a lot of stories that you see now, especially on, uh, I guess, online only publications like BuzzFeed, like HuffPost, like Mashable and, and those sort of like TechCrunch, those sort of ones, um, you, they're, they're about Twitter. They're, they're stories about Twitter. Um, and I read, and I tried to find this story today, I couldn't actually find it, but I've, I've read in the past that, that BuzzFeed used to have this policy where if a tweet got a certain amount of retweets, it might be 5,000 or 10,000, they would just write a story about it. Wow. And that's why you would often see these sort of stories like, you know, this person asked their prom date to the prom in a crazy way, even though like you read it and you go, what's this about? Mm-hmm. It had got a lot of retweets for some reason. So, but I think the, the point is like, it's when you, when you have this issue where people can buy followers, they can buy retweets, they can buy engagement and journalists are looking around and they're going, oh wow, that, that tweet, that tweet's got 10,000 retweets or this person who I've seen tweet something has 100,000 followers, they must be reputable and must have something to talk about. Like, you know, journalists who have a big following get to go, get asked to go on shows like this, they get asked to go on the radio and on TV because they have a large social media following. So like buying followers, buying engagement, it does it doesn't actually mean much in in the short term. It's like, okay, great, you've got, you know, ten thousand followers but half of them are fake. But to the outside viewer, to journalists, to media people, to people who put a lot of stock in Twitter, um, if you have more followers, you're a more powerful person, you're a more interesting person, you're a more newsworthy person. So um, I, I think it definitely is a big deal. So Ian Bogost wrote in The Atlantic that one solution, albeit unlikely to ever happen, would be for Twitter to actually just remove the display of followers, retweets, and all other numerical mm. measures from user accounts and tweets. He wrote, what is better than a million followers? The empty field that frees you of the urge to care. <laughs> um, but I think it is a spot-on observation, and it's kind of what you're talking about here, Joss, about the problem with humans, in that we do act like sheep and sort of blindly follow things based on yeah. their popularity. You guys got a thousand tweets, like it must be good because yeah. everyone else is talking about it. Like, Yeah. So do you think though that if Twitter did this, you know, in an ideal world, do you think everyone would just leave Twitter though because that's sort of become a lot of what it's about now? Oh, it's, it's a lot of it is, a, you know, for, obviously everyone feels good when they get a tweet that goes really well, they get, you know, heaps of followers something like that. I don't think it ever happened, but I don't know, maybe it could be a solution in an ideal world maybe. Yeah. Many people have spoken about the need for legislation against the creation and selling of these kinds of bots. Miriam, do you think that would even be possible? I mean, how, like, I guess, I mean, I guess it could be if, if to create a Twitter account, you have to send Twitter your passport or something like that. Something, you know, really invasive where only a real person gets a Twitter account. But like, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's it's probably not worth it. And, yeah, it's yeah. interesting you say that because one of Twitter's investors, a man named Mark Cuban, called for precisely that, a real name policy service so that it is one account, one person. Interestingly, that is the policy on China's major social media platform, Weibo. So And Facebook. It's, it's, it's quite difficult to set up a second mm. Facebook account. That's true, yeah. actually. You're right. And anything else you set up as a separate page that is connected to your own account. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yet yeah. in, in, in the aftermath of this story, it has been revealed that Facebook does also have a rather massive problem with fake accounts as well. Now, unfortunately, that is all we have time for on Fourth Estate. Thank you so much to my guests. Josh, thank you for joining us. Yeah. Dana? 
Thanks for having me. And Miriam, thank you very much for being on Fourth Estate. Pleasure. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast. And if you're already a subscriber, please leave us a review on your podcast app or on Facebook. It helps us know what you like and it does help other people to find the show. My name's Olivia Rosenman and you can catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Listener.